on our current path just in America, let alone the rest of the world. Stuff doesn't get better. Like we need some kind of like exogenous positive shock in order for things to get, because this problem has just been getting worse and worse and worse. And there are more people who kind of recognize that and are invested in continued dysfunction. Last week, I caught up with our guest from episode number 56, the deep thinking mathematician and musician, Marcus G. Miller. Marcus has written some thought-provoking and expansive reflections on COVID-19 about the death of George Floyd and the impact on the Black Lives Matter movement. As one of the most well-read and thoughtful guests we've had, I was keen to hear Marcus's perspectives on our current world reality and how the future might play out. I seek Marcus's advice on what white folk can do to support the drive for racial justice. We discuss his perspective on the need for moral consciousness and imagination. Marcus reflects on the reporting of the death of black men at the hands of the police, the broader underreported killings across the country, the media's handling of this, and how the left and the right are reacting. Marcus also recommends the books we should read to build our insight and knowledge on the nature of racism. Towards the end of the discussion, I seek Marcus's perspective on the power of meditation, its accessibility, and the marketing of meditation. Marcus also discusses the unifying principle of physics as he shares the latest thinking on the topic. I hope you enjoy the thoughts, reflections, and expansive imagination of Marcus G. Miller. Marcus, great to see you again on the Impossible Network. Yeah, good to see you too, man. Yeah, so this is going to be a little uh, a shorter than normal episode. We're just going to just chat, ask some questions, get your perspective on the crazy 2020 that we're all experiencing, everything from being in lockdown what's been happening with uh, the murder of George Floyd and some of the other um, abhorrent acts of uh, racism that we've witnessed on our televisions. And really to get your perspective on what we can do as communities, but also as individuals uh, to guide us through this transitional time and what you've, I've seen you refer to as our moral consciousness. So let's start with, before getting into some of the things you've written uh, I like look at the sort of the arc of actually what's going on at the moment. A lot of people that I listen to, and as a white person, not from the US, but from Britain, and Britain was just as much involved in the, let's say, the creation of an environment for racism and the slave trade way back in the day. As a person of white privilege, I've been trying to listen to understand what actions I can take so I can avoid what we've all been doing for, let's say, the last however many years or even lifetime of being complicit in the continuation of an environment where racism is accepted. And if we are at a time when we, the white community, can do something to become less complicit in its continuation, but co-conspirators in dismantling the system, what are the actions we can take? Is there such a thing as a playbook that people can look to? Yeah. So... There's so much going on in the world. And I think that the first thing one has to do is figure out internally what part is actually calling on you to play. I think that it's probably wise to abandon the idea of being a good person. I think that's generally true, actually. I don't think there's, there's a such thing as a quote unquote good person. And I think that one way of being able to control and influence large populations for a particular agenda is by having this abstract notion of, you know, um, or having this kind of subtle and agreed upon implicit notion of what is a good person versus not. And that to me, I think ends up being counterproductive because you're kind of just swimming in the same waters. You might be swimming in a different direction. It just kind of like moves the power around, but everybody has a part to play. Right. And that's something. And whereas like 
being a good person and living up to some standard that you have to learn what the standard is. And even when you learn it, I mean, even within the, within the, the kind of anti-racist work that I've seen, there's a whole bunch of debate. So if you are, and this is within, you know, the black community, this is when within community of colors. So are you, are you about reform versus are you about abolition? Are you anti-capitalist? Um, do you have to be anti-capitalist to be anti-racist? Like these are the things. And so if you're coming into all of this body of knowledge anew that, and, and trying to figure out, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I become a good person? How do I kind of find some, some notion of redemption from the, the original sin of racism that I've committed by living in the United States as white? Like you're not going to find it. And the degree to which you find it will take you to, will confuse you and take you to very, I think, disingenuous places. So you have to figure out like where it is, what, what play that, like in your body, in your soul, what are you called to actually, what, where are you called to be? And that the way that calling sounds won't say, okay, I'm supposed to work on this issue. It might not say that. It might be like, I'm supposed to read this. I want to check this out. Um, listening to this podcast, it makes me want to read this. And there's some urgency there. And I want to be, I want to detect that still small voice. And I want to point at that. And I think that's a, that's a, a way to go about it that is that allows you to kind of have ownership over the process. I think that like from there, I know that the part I haven't thought about this question at all because the part I'm led to play hasn't been educating white people. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've kind of had other concerns inside of it. And some people are very much like, okay, cool. I want to be in the place where I am talking to white people in, in the United States about how they can, you know, better think about racism and that kind of thing. And there, there are plenty of people like that. There are some people who are vehemently opposed to even the idea that on top of all of the injustices and, and traumas that I have suffered as a black person or, um, or as a brown person, indigenous person, person of color, immigrant, whatever, you name it, right? That I should also have to add to my list of things to do, educating white people. Like, I think that's preposterous on its face and I, I don't want to do that. Okay, cool. Like, that's not their part to play. And for me, it's like, I'm not horribly opposed to it, but it's just not where my investigation and my work in this process has taken me. So I can't give you a great answer about what are the, what's the playbook for the white community or like, what are the best courses of action? The most simple things I can say is a lot of the, the essence, if you're trying to understand like what is meant by white privilege, which I actually think is a really bad term, I actually... Personally, I don't like that term at all. I think it's very easily weaponized by, by very active and virulent racists. I think that like, I know that my life, even as a black person is like, I, I like it a lot. I'm, I'm pretty good. And I can name um, white people that I know. And then like groups of white people supposedly like that I don't, but who's fit into a certain kind of demographic that like, whose life is not I can imagine whose lives aren't as fulfilling as mine. And so when you talk about privilege, it's like, well, what do you actually mean? And you have to unpack it a bunch and you say, well, there are these kind of legal structures and social structures in place out of habit, culture and, and law down to urban planning and all these aspects that kind of favor whiteness and you trace the history of it. And it's like, okay, cool. That, that's what we're talking about. But privilege it's like there are a bunch of white people who do not experience anything that sounds that feels like privilege in their life. So it's like I don't like the term because because what happens is that then the extreme right says, hey, they're all saying that you're privileged. Do you does it feel like your life is privileged? You'd be like, well, no, it doesn't. My life actually sucks. Well, see how they're trying to hold this moral authority over you. You should come join us. 
right? And they do. And then you get the thing being weaponized even more because you were trying to be cute with slogans instead of, but also like unpacking a bunch of history, especially for somebody who isn't necessarily prone to either process that that much history or interpret history in that way, or who doesn't just want another thing to have to think about. Like if, if, if life is already kind of difficult and odious, it's like, oh, I also have to think about this thing, which I've never thought about before, but apparently I'm guilty of. So like all of a sudden guilt is being thrown at me. Who is it being thrown at me by? People I don't have any relationship to or don't have any trust for. So why should I even believe them? Why am I doing more work? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Like, it, it, it's a very human reaction to just be like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of good. So I don't, I don't even necessarily know what is a, what a better way, systematically, what a better way is to convey that message. Interestingly enough, catchy slogans and aggression do convince a lot of people or do at least rile a lot of people. And it seems like at, at this time, a lot of people started doing more introspection, probably because they're home from work and are on the social media all day and have to kind of deal with it. But so, like I said, playbook, read James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time, first chapter, My Dungeon Shook. It really gets at the essence of what he's talking about. Read the whole thing. You'll, you'll have a deep under, you'll have a even more deep, uh, an even deeper understanding and it's concise. And it's James Baldwin is a genius. So that like the way he puts words together, allow you to feel the thing in your body without necessarily having to process a bunch of history should also check out the history if you want to understand like white privilege as described by a white person. I hear Robin D'Angelo is very good. White fragility. Yeah, I've heard that one recommended. Yeah. And then Toni Morrison. Oh my God. Like I think Toni Morrison is the greatest practitioner of the English language like ever. Possible exception of Shakespeare because he invented half of the words that we use today. <laughs> and, and it's just like a profound psychologist. But it's like after like Shakespeare and Toni to me, in literature, there's just a steep drop off of like who's good at English, and she kind of captures so much of so much of the experience well, and in a way that once again, it's just by the words and by the scenarios that she concocts in her novels, you just kind of feel it in your body what's happening, rather than have to like have debates about like history or kind of postmodern language or like what whatever things people are talking about these days. I completely agree with you in terms of the need for rebranding for white privilege. It's the same as defund the police. So I think that needs to be uh, rebranded because I think, yeah. that's, I think that's been weaponized in the same way yeah. to create political division and polarization within the political system. You've mentioned two or three books there. And, and by the way, like the, it's like for me, you know, if you want to reduce the thing to a game of power, then creating these divisions is a smart idea because having an other kind of polarizes and, and makes people more hyped up on your side. I guess the question is, it's like, you know, how powerful does one think they are to just kind of make moves like that rather than unpack? And with the defund the police thing, like, to be fair, you don't actually have to dig that deep to, to get what they're really talking about. White privilege, I think, is a little bit more, and like the, the, the term white supremacy, like those, I think, do require a little bit more unpacking and like history tracing. But like, you look, you read one article that says defund the police and like the first paragraph is like, no, 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 no. We don't mean necessarily. I mean, some of some of them, some want to abolish the whole thing in their, their, their papers on that. But a lot of it is like, no, what we mean is we want to reallocate money away from um, police department, bloated and inefficient police departments to social services, which is like, yeah, sure. The defund is, is very aggressive. It's sexy. People who are into it, who are already on that are very pumped by that, by that notion. It's not the best terminology to get 
outside people. Although, like I said, you don't necessarily, you don't have to dig that deep to, to get what they really mean. And I think it's like a very reasonable, reasonable agenda um, when you unpack it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would like to read a paragraph from something you wrote recently. And I just get you to contextualize it. And it builds on what you just discussing here. So quoting now, in my view of history, the reason uh, is America's refusal to come to terms with race, not so much because race is at the center of all questions, but that it has been a weapon of choice to divide people, direct resources and protect some while crushing others since the 17th century. This is true by the way of both major political parties and many public and private institutions of American life. Robbing the topic of its distorting power would likely prevent us from being systematically derailed, but that requires a sobering look at history, internal work to see the world anew, and a dramatic leap of moral imagination. So, yeah, clearly this weaponization of what's been going on recently is a perspective on this. It's you're, it's, you're painting a much bigger picture than just the immediacy of saying we want justice for George right. or Aubrey or anyone else. And no one would disagree with any of these these things and these demands and the changes that maybe need to take place. But clearly there's a bigger play, something at play here. And so I'd like to get you to describe what drove you to write this. And could you talk about why you describe this as a dramatic leap of moral imagination? Yeah, yeah okay. So... Let's see. Laws segregating and disempowering black people in what is now known as America started before America was a thing. Right. It was started in colonial times and and they were written in aggressively in the 17th, in the mid to late 17th century, first to stop interracial relationships between specifically between white women and black men and then to crush, uh, to discourage rebellion because there was a uh, there was an alliance between poor white indentured servants um, who are from the lower classes of England and Ireland and black folks that rebelled in the Virginia colony. Um, it's called Bacon's Rebellion. And they realized, like, all right, well, we need an effective way to keep the lower classes divided so that we can maintain this kind of semi like quasi aristocratic setup that they had going on in the Virginia colonies. Like, OK, cool. Well, we already have these miscegenation laws on the books. Let's extend that to be certain rights, privileges, ability to learn, and that kind of thing. And since then, it's just served as a served as an extraordinarily useful divide and way to keep powerful people in power. The idea of crushing rebellion is really important because to this day, how it's used is broadly, and to this day, broadly, how it's used is you say, well, how do we get poor so-called white people to vote to empower the rich? Well, we say that, look, we're going to take everything from you. Yep, we're going to direct resources to the top. But socially and in the kind of cultural mythology and the imagination of, of your life, you are always going to be better and existentially more worthy than them, right? And that them is just Black people kind of because that's how it has been for 401 years, I guess. 1619 when Black folks first showed up, um, maybe 50 years later. Uh, when some of the some of the more stringent laws started being passed, right? And this has been used by the Democratic Party throughout American history. It's currently used by the Republican Party. It was known once Southern Democrats flipped to the Republican Party after the Civil Rights Movement. It became what was known as a Southern strategy to consolidate Southern white people into the Republican Party, which was like also consisted of like Northeastern Brahmin 
you know, millionaire businessmen. It's like, why would, why would like rural, why would rural folks, rural Christians who, you know, Christianity doesn't have a, um, doesn't hold like a special place for like an admiration of the wealthy kind of in the text or in the tradition of the thing, um, in the history of it, you know, the Catholic church and the history of, you know, that all of that in Europe, you can get into that, but like, there's no, there's no kind of special place for the rich in teachings of Christianity. So like, why would evangelicals and rural folks be aligned with the wealthiest businessmen of the Northeast? Like, that's not, that doesn't make sense. Well, how do we do that? Well, okay, cool. We're going to take everything from you, but you're going to be better than them. Like, that's just what it's going to be. You're going to be more American and you're going to be more Christian and your values are going to be held up and more sacrosanct than in the mythology given by the media and the way history is told and in scholarship and, and accounting of different cultural values and uh, science and to, to the degree that science was and is kind of manipulated along these lines is like, you're always going to be better, better than them. And if you hold on to, we'll, we'll make sure that you can hold on to that. That's our job. That, that's kind of the, what, what we're protecting culturally. And all of this is worth unpacking because like a lot of the words are kind of, I'm, I'm like, we're, we're zoomed out. It's a high yeah. level of analysis, where, like metaphors yeah. are mixed and like that kind of thing. But like, that's kind of what's going on. And it's always been done that way. Like conversely, the Democratic Party says, hey, you see how they all want to kill you and they all want to hurt you. We'll make sure that doesn't happen. Just keep voting for us. We're not actually going to like do that much for you. Like your life isn't going to look better off after we're in power. Or yeah, like four years, four years, eight years, 12 years after we're in power. Life is not going to look that much better off, but at least like them, those guys that are trying to kill you, we're protecting you from them. And that's the swindle on the, on the left, right? And it's international too. I mean, a, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of love for communism and socialism in various elements of the black community. And, you know, a lot of that was fomented by Russia. I mean, we see, we see the kind of similar thing today, right? It's like, you know, Russia's like, you know, we don't, in communism, you are all equal, you're all comrades, right? Like, look at what capitalism is doing to you in America. Is this is this right? Like, maybe you should come mess with us. Um, Paul Robeson uh, went to Russia in the 20s or 30s, and he was a, he was considered a superstar. He was saying um, there is a uh, he testified before Congress saying it's like this is the first time I've been treated like a man, like in my life was when I was in Russia. Like, why is that? I was I was born here. I grew up here. Like, I've done everything here, but the only time I'm treated with dignity or in particular as a man, was, uh, was in Russia. So, yeah, it's, it's very much a weapon of choice used to divide and sell other political agendas and other political packages and candidates and that kind of thing. And it's, at this point, it's all just very, um, it's all very predictable. And it allows people to sell like more and more radical agendas as, as things happen, because it's always going to be a wedge issue. There's no way around it. And there are a lot of vested interests in keeping it that way, because there's a lot of money in it. So then what I, what do I mean by a dramatic leap of moral imagination? Well, it requires us to so much of how we think about the world and what human nature is and how we'll act and therefore what is right given the parameters of human nature, not given like what we want, is formulated by our view of history and our view of humanity, which has this like 401 some odd year old problem that's, that's kind of been a part of it. And so when I say like a dramatic leap of moral imagination, you actually have to imagine like almost at bottom, like a whole different scheme of how people can relate to one another. And like very interestingly enough, I think that a lot of this, a lot of this imagining has been done by like black 
queer women. Yeah, I think that, I mean, like the founders of Black Lives Matter. I know Patrice Coulor is, is, uh, identifies as Black and queer. I actually don't know the, um, how the other founders identify, but I know that when I read a lot of the scholarship, it's been Black women, it's been Black queer women who are the first to kind of say, well, no, we should reimagine this whole thing. Miriam Kaba, I don't know, I don't know if she identifies as queer, but it's a black woman. She's leading the abolitionist movement. She's one of the leaders of the abolitionist movement and has been putting in kind of the thought work and running organizations that are very active and have been for, you know, the past 20, 30 years, I want to say. I, I may be overestimating it. I know at least, I've seen articles from her that are at least 15 years old, um, and I think she's been active longer, but I, I might be screwing up my dates on her. And she had the article in the New York Times, like, yes, we actually mean abolish the police department. And, you know, like when she paints the picture of the world that that looks like, it's like, well, yeah, this is a this is a dramatic leap of moral imagination. You're imagining a, a whole different way that people can interact with each other. So there have been a lot of black women who've been putting in black women and black queer women have been putting in work on, you know, imagining the world differently. I don't know that personally where I stand, I don't know that I agree with all of the claims, but I think that like thinking that, being that creative, I think it's good to have that kind of thing on the table. It's good to be that, that creative and that wild with it. Because, I mean, you know, on our current path, just in America, let alone the rest of the world, like on our current path, like stuff doesn't get better. Like we need some kind of like exogenous positive shock in order for things to get, because this problem has just been getting worse and worse and worse. And there are more people who kind of recognize that and are invested in continued dysfunction. So it's like, yeah. As you also acknowledged in your, in your blog post, beyond just this 400-year-old problem, we've got this impending climate apocalypse that's we've leaving aside the mentioning of potential sort of nuclear catastrophe, sort of the biohacking that can be done using CRISPR, that what could be used uh, by terrorists is a, a, an existential threat. How do we adapt technology in a way that doesn't undermine our humanity? Something you also called out. All these things need new paradigms. So given the trajectory of this movement, and yes, there are other movements around these other areas with people just as active, but maybe not quite as vocal at the moment, such as Greta. And I know there's a, a, a people we've interviewed are in the area of AI to bring more humanity and let humanity dictate AI rather than AI dictating what, how we should be as humans. Given the trajectory we're on with this movement, we're not really, it doesn't seem to be anything other than an outcome in the November elections, either bringing 45 or keeping 45 in the White House or bringing Biden in, to which point, as you said, is just the other side of the faction taking control. What is required to create a real paradigm shift in particularly this issue around race? Uh, and beyond that, you know, how do we re-engineer how we act as individuals and act as groups to break the system that currently exists? I can't speak to how the world should be set up authoritatively. I can say what I feel like my part is, and I can say what I feel like, I can talk about how I arrived there and recommend that process, especially because my process doesn't necessarily land you at, at the particular actions that I'm taking. I mean, for me, it's a, it's a, very, deep, it's a very deep investment in, in, um, in spirituality and meditation and study and kind of accessing what kind of shows up in spiritual texts or religion in different aspects of life. So the kind of calm space you can get when in deep meditation 
you don't necessarily have to, you know, chant like Nam Myoho Renge Kyo or, or, you know, name of a Hindu god or, or like a, a, a Hail Mary to necessarily access that kind of thing. Um, maybe for certain aspects of it you do, but you can find that in kind of deep focus, internal concentration on other tasks, a kind of process of integrating one's own, one's own psyche and being like arriving at a place of more kind of that, that's more centered and evinces more kind of moral courage. And from there, for me, once I kind of stepped out and lived in that, then the actions that I was supposed to take and the parts that I was supposed to play in the outside world became a little bit more easy to execute and required less thinking, required less having to hack through the moral philosophy of what is absolutely right. And then taking from that like categorical imperative or like sense of an absolute philosophy of what is right and good, like trying to whittle it down to apply to a specific situation. It gives me a, a sense of humility that for me right now, I'm doing a lot of writing. I'm doing some speaking. I'm doing some composing and creation, and I'm becoming more active in, in some stuff locally and personally, you know, with my friends and that kind of thing. So there's a certain gesture of my activism right now. I can be humble enough to say that, like, it's not my responsibility to save the whole world. It's my responsibility to play the part that I have the ability to tap into that I know is given to me, that I'm confident enough that my part will have, uh, will have an impact and that I should, you know, maintain that intensity. I don't need to necessarily judge the, I'm not at a place where I personally need to judge the tactics or ideas of others who, you know, if I feel that they're, you know, also moving toward making the world suck less, I need to say, well, no, they're not thinking about it correctly. What they need to be doing is I don't know what they need to be doing. Like they have their own, they have their own lives and they have their own experiences that inform how they're dealing with this. I think that the degree to which one has the, um, has the space and inner confidence to accept one's place and act from one's proper place, as well as accept the world around, it makes more harmony. It makes better counterpoint. Like, 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 like you're writing a Bach fugue, like all the pieces have to sit in the right place. Um, the bass part isn't necessarily going to be playing the same as the, the soprano part. It doesn't sound right. There are problems with the harmony and the, with the aesthetic. So that's where I'm at. I can definitely see certain people saying, no, you should be doing more. No, we have this way. No, the way that you're thinking is going to be is won't actually lead to anything because it's not a lot of concreteness to the plan. You need to be arguing for to defund this or you need to be active in this organization that's pushing these bills or you need to say, scrap the whole thing. We need to um, we need to actually adopt like more and more intelligent capitalism, like actually all of the protesting thing is off. And I kind of, there's, there's something, I'll, I'll speak a little tangent, I'll speak on that. When I was participating in these protests, my first thought was, or my most enduring thought was, my parents and grandparents were doing this 60 years ago. Like, what do I need to do so that this isn't happening 60 years from now? Like, I don't want there to be professional activists. I don't want people to have to spend 20 to 30 years of their life to figure out how to get a boot off of, off of our neck. Like, there should be no boot, like the, the, all of that intelligence and dedication should, in my view, right, could be going to something that something more instead of combating, instead of having to combat evil, that's so-called evil is like creating more affirmation and, and, and life and good, not just like cleaning up the horrible mess of an existing system. Like, like I don't want for like us, us being black folks and us being anybody who's invested in the, the current struggle, you know, around social justice right now. I don't want us to be doing that. 
Like we have to do it because that's what's happening right now. We have to deal with the actual problem. The sixty years, like I don't want, I don't want nobody to be marching. I don't want nobody to say, yeah, I had to, you know, I was, I was a professional activist all my life, and I'm like hard, I'm hardened, and I, you know, I got all this rage against the machine and like that kind of thing in the system. No, 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 no. Everybody winning. Like that, that's what I would like to see. And so, so you know, as I think about that, was one of the questions. It's like, well, what is my part to play in this? Uh, well, I kind of have an out. I kind of have an, an outcome in mind, which isn't the perpetuation of this, this kind of deadlock of like a continuing need for activism because stuff is still dysfunctional. I don't want stuff to be dysfunctional. I listened to um, probably one of the more challenging podcasts, a reflection on this current situation by Sam Harris, and. You know, he clearly is a man that divides opinion, similar to Jordan Peterson. That's the atheist, right? Yeah, the neuroscientist. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, he's great. He's wonderful at bringing data to an argument. Mm -hmm. And when you talked to him, when I read what you'd written, it sort of reinforced something he said, which slightly goes against what Trevor Noah said about the breaking of the social contract, in that if you actually break down the data... And just purely around men, young men killed by the police, either in custody or in the process of arrest. In pure numbers, there are more white men killed by the police than there are young black men. Um, But they're just not filmed. They're just not weaponized by the mainstream media, whether it be left and right. Mm -hmm. So when you actually look at that data and you say, okay, this is a systemic problem with just policing, regardless of being, let's say, being put into situations where they shouldn't be put, leaving aside the whole question of sort of guns and whether they should be carrying guns or not, leaving aside the fact that there's 300 odd million guns in circulation in this country, you're never going to get rid of that. Clearly, this is something that has been weaponized. So what Sam Harris is making the point that there is justified anger, but it's people are being played by this. And I think yeah. that's something that you you felt as well. So if we are to get to a point where this isn't going to happen 60 years from now, presumably we, we do have to rethink education system. We have to rethink the fundamental building blocks of the society and the way that individuals are well educated, but also, as you said, look at their inner self rather than just the uh, externalities of the world they live in. You mentioned your meditation and the practice. And you've also, you talked uh, in your writings about the, your focus through and why you're drawn to the beauty of math and music because of its, all as, like other aspects of beauty, like elegance, clarity, because it, it informs, I think you said, you informs your, our internal growth and our moral consciousness. So what would your advice be to people that feel maybe somewhat helpless, even though they're part of this, uh, this great movement? What actions can people take themselves to start a process of personal interchange? First, I'll, I'll kind of address the, I saw all of that data, the, the police data. Yeah, more, more white people are killed by the police every year than, than black people. It kind of misses the point. And I think that like, it, it misses the point on both sides, right? Like, I think that the main issue isn't, there's this one uh, activist that I checked out. His name is Philip Atiba Goff. He works with the Center of Policing Equity. I think that that's his organization. Check that out. And what his kind of point was is that like the flashpoint is police brutality. And sadly, it's kind of a predictable flashpoint that that various people with different agendas will activate. But like the real problem is, is that like if you look at what social services are available to black communities is like. Well, education sucks. The food deserts. There's like 
not adequate housing, you know, there's, there's not good mental health or therapy or anything like this. It's like the police are one of the social services that are left. And so when that's dysfunctional too, what you're, what you're saying is what the rage is, is like, look, this whole thing isn't working. People aren't, aren't actually making that argument. It's more felt than, than explicitly stated. So it's not the point that like somebody's get like, yes, it's wrong that people are unjustly killed by the police. And one thing, the other thing to take into account is that there are also very many people being killed with racial motivated murders and attacks that are not police right now. And that's a big part of the thing. So Ahmaud Arbery was not murdered by the police. There have been a spate of lynchings, right, in, in the past month or so. And I mean, that's like clearly... Like that takes a lot of effort. There are, if you want to just kill somebody, there are a lot easier ways to do that than to actually, you know, go through the trouble of lynching somebody. Like that's clearly dog whistling is like a signal. There was a woman who was attacked in Madison, Wisconsin, and and you know, the, it wasn't by the police, but it's like this this kind of like spate of of racially motivated um, attacks and killings, and a, a bunch of the rage is also around that. And so it's like. I'm compelled by the, and, and one of the things that always makes me have a side eye is like, yeah, when you look at actual, and also the number of people killed by the police, like isn't very high relative to the number of deaths, period. So it's like, well, there are a lot of things going wrong, but the problem is, is that like, right, there are a lot of things going wrong. This is, a lot of those are hard to, in order to fix them, it's like deep in the weeds or to see when the decision was made that turned a functional system off or made it dysfunctional. It's very hard to tell because it's made in some backroom meeting, right? This is on film and on camera, yeah. but we feel the effects of all of this. So there's going to be this rage that comes out at the top. So yeah, there was another woman, Heather McIntosh, I want to say, who had a similar article the weekend, the weekend directly after George Floyd was murdered. It was like, there are a bunch of murders in Chicago this weekend and where, you know, there are a bunch of black people died in Chicago. We hear nothing about this. We hear about all the police murders. So it's like, that's compelling on its face. You have to, once again, put it in context. I also think that the, that the left would do well to address that with more clarity and with the sloganing and the messaging to look at that with, with more depth. But that's just for me. But then to, so then to your point, it's like, to, to your actual question, like what are the, what are more actions that people can take? I mean, I know it's really hard even if we just look at the vast financial gap to the extreme poverty of many black communities, and although there's poverty in, in the southern states and white communities as well, and even up on the coasts as well, it's very hard for people in those situations to, to think about uh, the tools that people in, a let's say, a privileged position can use, like meditation. Is meditation a privileged tool? I don't know. Like, But I suppose many people would say that... Uh, the marketing of meditation these days is toward the privileged. Yeah. Let's just say I've had conversations where I've mentioned it and people have uh, called it out as being a tool of the privileged yeah. because we have access to the apps and we have access to the sources where we can join groups and uh, attend uh, classes, all these types of things, which are partly driven by the economics of the meditation industry. But, you know, if we're trying to sort of guide people into, with to access some of the tools that you access... You know, it must be very hard for someone in a, a situation of economic despondency. See, I would say that, like specifically, meditation doesn't require doesn't actually require anything. You don't need an app. That the app that everybody used to talk about for me was the Insight Timer. The Insight Timer is a timer that hits the sound of a singing bowl at the beginning and end of the met, or you can change it to a gong if you wish, or a woodblock, or something. Like it's a timer. Like that. That's not. 
you don't necessarily need, you don't really need classes to do it. You get the, what, what it requires to be effective is commitment and the ability to set up environment. And, and one could make a case that like the ability to set up committed environments is easier when you have privilege. But I think that's a lot less absolute than say like the access to a proper education, right? Like, the, like setting up an environment where um, people are on the same page and somewhat consistent is easier to do than, than setting up an environment where lots of people do well on say the SAT or have like the kind of like educational attainment. Like, I, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm really broad brushing here. So somebody could, could easily say, well, actually, no, like think about this and that. And I could be proven wrong with that statement. But to meditate, you just have to sit quietly for some amount of time and do it every day. And with that, and you can, and different systems have different tools for doing this, right? Like meditation has a relationship to prayer or like the Christian concept of contemplation. It has a, you know, it shows up in Hinduism. It shows up in Buddhism. It shows up in Taoism. It shows up in Santeria and different kind of Afro or Afro-Latin spiritual systems. Like the idea of aggressively taking some time of your day and using that to commune with God, if you will, or whatever, whatever you find to be inside, like is actually free. Like you don't need, you don't, you don't need any material thing to do that besides maybe a place to sit. So I'd recommend it. Now I'm being a little bit glib how to get educated on, on doing it and, and maybe buying the book. I don't know, man, like they're free, you can find this on YouTube. Like, I feel like that information is probably accessible, but I don't want to sound like I'm chastising people. I'm just saying, I, I guess I'm just pushing back against the idea that meditation is for the privilege. It's marketed toward the privilege, but y'all shouldn't be reading, y'all shouldn't be sucked in by marketing anyway. Like no short form articles, ignore them. You know, like, like that kind of thing. Like marketing is dangerous for your health period. So, <laughs> so you spent the time during COVID-19 immersing yourself in long form content, in developing your uh, musical sort of skills, r- writing, composing, yeah. and focusing on your math. Yeah. What was what was the impact of that? That isolation, both uh, physical isolation and also mental isolation from the outside world. Yeah, I realized how much of an inside cat I am. I love it. It was it was really great having nothing to do and nowhere to go, and being able to focus focus like the vast majority of my time only on things that I care about was really a blessing for me. I think that. What it's done for me is given me a sense of how I want to direct my focus outward when I, as I you know, choose to direct my focus outward more versus inward. I think it's given me, you know, I'm, I'm better at many instruments <laughs> than I was when, when, when COVID started. And yeah, it's just given me a, a, a deeper kind of sense of, a deeper sense of self. It gives me a, a deeper sense that I have something to offer and a, and a greater willingness to offer you're probably one of the most well-read guests we've had on the podcast, <laughs> particularly having read so many sort of spiritual and uh, theological sort of texts. Yeah. We've all seen in the, well, you probably haven't because you don't consume a lot of the news, but there have been people in the news recently that is spread around the world because of the politicalization of mask wearing. Yeah. People that stood up in Florida deriding the committee for making it mandatory to wear masks, saying yeah. it's their constitutional right not to wear a mask, but it's also where they reference God 
and Christianity as being this mask wearing, being the devil's work. I'd love your perspective on where do we go with something where we've got people that are clearly on the religious right, that are drawn to this First Amendment, that can't see the logic in, in mask wearing. How do we deal with a, a society that is, has got such a deep wound? <sighs> I don't, maybe there's not an answer to it, but it's just yeah, something like, I've been... Like, I mean, like, yes, yeah, this, this is the first I've heard of it. I, I know that, you know, people use and have used and will continue to use God to justify all, all manners of atrocities. Or I don't know that this is an atrocity, but it's like just ridiculous nonsense or things that kind of fly in the face of established wisdom or common sense. Faith is faith is double-edged in that way. When you kind of look at when you look at why Christianity is being invoked in these kind of situations, that leads to like a really strange, dark conspiratorial path. Whereas like you can't even it's like you can't even match like a stronger interpretation of theology to some of that stuff. Because like this isn't actually theological. Like this is actually like all right. Well, there. I, I don't know. There's like a whole bunch of. Stuff. Okay. Well. Let me sort of expand it because of where I'm, uh, yeah. I'm taking it to. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Divine Matrix. Okay. And it's, it really explores from a, a, physics, a physics standpoint the drive towards a unifying theory. Yeah. Of where we had obviously Newton's theory and then we had Einstein and other ones in between. And we know that there is some sort of quantum layer there. And it's often referred to as the ether. And the yeah. ether is that connective, what's in that, what we call space yeah. that connects everything together, that connects all of us together. Yeah, yeah. Zero point field, yeah. And as I've been reading it, and as we're, you know, scientists are searching for what this ether is, and are there, you know, are there ether flows? Clearly, common sense and logic tells you that, you know, our senses, when we, you meditate and we come together in movements, we are all connected. But 2020, with all these things happen, it feels like, as the, the book calls the, the Matrix, there's a wrinkle in the Matrix, something mm. that's happening in our world that's moving us into some form of different dimension. And there's a tension. There are facets of society that are trying to draw us, hold us back, are trying to stop this progression. Yeah. And then there's other, there's other things that are drawing us towards where we need to be going as a society to survive and to thrive. And maybe it's there's something bigger at play here in this, let's say, ether, this universal energy that's drawing us to a place where we can find solutions to these bigger existential risks that we face. And I just, given that you're so deeply, well, so well-read and so, and so spiritual and you've got this great introspective approach to life. I just wanted to get your perspective on on that. Yeah, I've been exposed to a bunch of these ideas. So yeah, there's the there's the idea, okay, cool. We're getting to a point where divine masters of the world have said, all right, 2020 is the year where we're either going to evolve or perish. Like this is this I've heard like yeah. people say that kind of thing. I've heard this other idea that that actually the game if once again we're we're constituting that there is a that there is a game on this level, and I, I, hmm. I'm agnostic to that. I don't have any insight into yeah. that actually. But like, there's also this one where it's like, well, the the game has already been decided. We already lost, and actually, the reason there is this kind of draw toward spirituality in public consciousness is because it's better that we go away, we, that we pass away in each other's arms and at each other's throats. 
And like either of those things, like we can we can take the fact that like there are great upheavals. There there are obviously great upheavals in, in the world, at least amongst a certain set of the the population. There's a, a growth and in interest in spirituality or metaphysics or, or you know that kind of thing. And you can interpret those two facts however you want. You can spin any wonder and any number of like wondrous or terrifying narratives around that. I'm not particularly drawn to any any one. And once again, kind of like in my own introspection, I don't really feel like it's it's my place to take ownership of that. Like I have, like that's not where my my piece of the puzzle lives, at least for right now. So I can't really I can't really endorse one view over the other. But it's often fun to speculate, and I think one of the uses of narratives like that is once again to imagine yourself small and and find humility. It's not that you need to necessarily be correct or to prophesize accurately. It's, it's more that it's just like the, the willingness to believe that you and your knowledge and us and our knowledge of the world is small and that we have so much to learn and take in and to experience. And that the game, if we're constituting the thing as a game, is so much larger than us. Like being able to take that place of smallness and humbleness in the universe at large can actually be experienced as a movement of like it, it's related to Christian grace or or like movement of the Shakti, if you will. Like they're they're related in tonality. They're not the same thing and the philosophies don't quite mesh. But if you kind of draw on that experience internally, then it's like, oh, I, I see why you use those words to describe that. That got it. So yeah, as for like the the ether. So like, I guess the, the thing people are talking about now is like the zero point field. Mm, yeah. Like things have to be, there is no absolute zero. Things have to always be moving or else Heisenberg uncertainty principle is violated in order. And that also has to be evenly distributed throughout everything, because if it weren't, it violates, it also violates Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I think, I think that's what the argument is. I've, I've forgotten what this, I've forgotten it specifically. Um, and I can't think, think it through on the spot, but it's something like that. And so, right. So there's this like zero point field of, you know, quantum foam particles and antiparticles materializing spontaneously and disappearing spontaneously and canceling each other out. And that's evenly throughout the universe. And maybe we identify that with like God, because all of the religious texts talk about God being everywhere and recording everything and keeping a record of and being, you know, infinitely manifest or like the Tao, right? The the way, like that kind of thing, like it kind of matches up in the, you know, you can look at it that way. Yeah. I don't know. That'd be cool. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I really love, I really love, um, I really love physics and I, and I'm interested in this kind of introspective, somewhat metaphysical approach to life. And, you know, it'd be great if there was a way to, uh, and maybe that'll be the, the discovery that saves us all is there'll be some um, way to actively harness that to our benefit. We, maybe we get free energy. So we're not to fight over energy anymore. If we get free energy, like a lot of problems can go away because we're no longer competing over a scarce and exhaustible resource. Oh, but I don't know. Tom, there's a great uh, talk I should share with you by, went out on YouTube, the Guardian journalist and writer, Paul Mason, mm-hmm. talking about a world beyond carbon capitalism. And it's a really good talk. Mm-hmm. And he's just laying out the, the, sort of some of the bigger existential sort of risks we face and some of the solutions that he's seeking. And yeah, his latest book is supposed to be brilliant. I'm about to start that. 
talking of physics and uh, yeah, talking of physics, uh, Merritt Moore, you did an Instagram yes. live with her recently yeah. and I missed it. How did it go? Oh, that was so much fun. That was right after Stephen Wolfram published a paper giving a, a computational unified field theory. Uh, or let, let me let me not let me not misrepresent it. He said he may have a path to uh, unifying quantum mechanics and gravity and giving a uh, and giving a fundamental explanation based in computation of everything. The actual there are some issues with it. In particular, he surmises a method or a way based on like a really elementary progression of functions of iterative functions that would give rise to something that looks like our universe. The problem is, is that the space of possible iterative functions that could give rise to the universe is extraordinarily large. And there's also a proof that says we don't, there's no way to reduce the investigation computationally. And that like, if the thing has iterated 500, like say 500, uh, 10 to the 500th times or something like that, um, which is like his rough estimate. If it's iterated that many times, we can't actually figure out, we can't actually take an example and process it faster than that many times. So you can't actually like, so, so how do you figure out like which fundamental like computational function, iterated function is, represents our universe, if this is even a, a good idea? I don't know. But the cool thing about his system is that with certain reasonable assumptions, you do get a, uh, you do get a, a unified version of quantum mechanics and gravity that I believe is four-dimensional and has some overlap with, with current theories, uh, current, current like stabs at unified field theory. So Merritt and I talked about, talked a little bit about that. And then we talked about uh, just like being creative and being artists and, you know, being interested in, you know, math and physics and what that life was like. But yeah, that was a really fun podcast. Yeah. Or not podcast, uh, Instagram. Instagram. Okay. And during the lockdown, what have been the books that you've read that you would recommend? Uh, let's see. Three Body Problem. I read that trilogy. Um, maybe oh, I, I might have. Yeah. Yeah, I saw you post that. That that yeah. looks great. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. There's a book called The Shack. It's a novel, and it's and it does like a really good job of just capturing, like in real short form, Christian theology. Really beautiful book. A lot of the other stuff that I've been reading has been pretty technical from scores, as I've been like learning to write more classical music. So I've been like studying a lot of box scores and then, you know, different books in, in math and physics. So right now I'm reading a textbook on complex analysis. I revisited Electrodynamics by Griffiths and I f- forgot which quantum book I was reading. It might have been like a, like a monograph or something off of the Internet. So those have been, uh, there's been that. Um, let's see, what else? There was, oh, what's this other... There's another spiritual book I want to say it was by Daskalos. But yeah, check out Daskalos. Okay. Daskalos right. is great. Megas of Strobilos is the one you should start with. Okay. And what about your performing? Oh, people still do that. That used to be a thing. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Gigs. Huh. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I haven't been doing very much on, on Instagram. So like the, the migration for a lot of musicians was to just jump on yeah. live streaming. And I didn't really feel compelled to do that. I felt like it felt like a very saturated market. I haven't done very much with video editing, trying to like coordinate, figure out how to coordinate a band. And people have done it. It's definitely doable. I never felt like a strong internal push to to do that. But people have been really successful with it. 
I think the first time I played for people was at a protest led by John Baptiste from Union Square to, uh, to Washington Square Park in early June. And then subsequently, at, there, there, was a, there was another protest the following Friday, I want to say, um, that was encouraging people to get out to vote. John is doing some really remarkable work with that. Um, he's in, in the New York Times and such. So those have been kind of my public performances. I had the talk that I was giving with the National Museum of Math, where I debuted some, um, some music that I had written. I didn't actually perform it. Um, I had somebody else perform it. It's like some classical music, and I only play so much piano, so my imagination is a little bit faster than my hands. So <laughs> I had somebody else perform it. And then I like played, you know, I played a little bit of saxophone as people were leaving, but I haven't really jumped into the live stream saxophone from my house kind of vibe, nor have I jumped, nor have I joined the Brady Bunch in terms of having like the squares and faces, like everybody playing a different instrument. But, you know, every, but a lot of people have been doing that to great success. So it's, it's, it's dope. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you for your time, Marcus. It's been great to catch, catch up with you and, and get your reflections on these crazy times. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, times are crazy. We'll get through it. So what do you have planned for the rest of the year? If we can plan. You can't planning for the rest of the year. Come on, man. It's a lot of pivoting, right? So, um, so my birthday was on Thursday. Oh, and, um, happy belated birthday. Thank you. And, you know, which is always a time for me where it's like, all right, how do I want to, uh, what am I, what do I reflect on in the year past? And, you know, what do I want going forward? And it's conveniently situated in the middle of the calendar year. So I can do that like twice a year at like major landmarks. I can do it at a new year's and I can, then I do it on my birthday that I do it at new year's it's a nice cycle. But I think it's like, well, you know, if I assume that live music, let's just as, as, as a fun, fun assumption, assume that live music isn't going to come back in the way that it used to, or that if it does come back, I'm, it may not be sustainable in the way that it once was. What do I want to do with, what do I want to do in my life? What kind of impact do I want to make? What kind of things do I want to create? Where do I want to live? What communities do I want to be a part of? What kind of money do I want to make with whom? You know, all of these are, are really interesting questions to be, able to, to be able to answer in all of this time. And I'm, you know, moving toward that moving toward that now. So it's more like I can't, you know, plan anything specific, but I can kind of orient myself to the life that I want and start putting the work and making and making the connections to to make that available to me. So yeah, that, that's how I answer that. Not return to hedge funds. No, I don't I don't think I'll be going to work work for a hedge fund again. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll start one for musicians. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well it's been great. Thanks for your time, Marcus. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. Bye, Mark. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time. <laughs>